I think a lot of the space we do in this country, um, at least um, maybe not so much these days, but earlier in the late 20th century, is very what I think of as leaky space. You know, like like the buildings are spaced too far apart, or they don't, or the or the open space is really just so naked and 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 empty. You know that um, then something's supposed to happen there. But it was like when you we were in architecture school and you would draw these certain kind of plants that, you know, look like they only belong in a fern bar or whatever that used to be called. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio, a podcast that talks with architects to learn how they use Apple products in the practice of architecture with your host, Neil Pan. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph. Monograph is the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. Learn how Monograph can help you be more productive at monograph.com. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio. In this episode, we'll hear from an architect who is the founder and principal of his own firm and has developed a vision of enhancing the communities of Northern New England. His extensive background in historic preservation and adaptive reuse contributes to preserving important pieces of architectural history. He's a nuts and bolts guy with a passion for efficient construction methods and techniques for achieving maximum sustainability and energy efficiency in buildings. I'm pleased to welcome architect Chris Kennedy to the show. Hi, Neil. Great to be here. It's been a while since we've spoken. Yeah, I miss our weekly um, weekly masterminds now that I had to replace you. I'm not sure I've ever done as good a job as you were doing. So, well, I appreciate that. Thank you. So, let's get started with what inspired you to become an architect. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure exactly, but um, when I was a kid, uh, well, my father was in the military, he was in the Navy. And so we would travel around every couple of years. And, you know, we were always um, moving to new places and looking for new places to live. And so my parents used to drag me along to communities that were being built in the late 60s, early 70s, like um, Columbia, Maryland, or Reston, Virginia, because we were often back and forth to the D.C. area. And we would go look at model houses, you know, and um, there would be these big developments with like two or three model homes, like on one little block, you know, and you would go and you would wander around. And they were always, um, you know, trying to be impressive. So... I don't know. I kind of went and like was we were always analyzing these like houses at some level. And then um, also, you know, same reason as moving around a lot. We traveled a lot. And um, my parents uh, took my sister and I to Europe three times, you know, on these uh, space available flights from bases to over to Europe and stuff. And we would spend two to three weeks traveling around. Did that about three times when I was young and so you know got to see all these different buildings and all of this stuff and then took a drafting class in high school the notorious drafting class yeah and i think i think i think i also thought architecture was probably a cool thing to be maybe it was like mr brady or something (laughs) from the um, yeah brady bunch yeah and so i just you know ended up going to school for architecture you know which was great and um been doing it ever since been doing it since then yeah so you went to the university of notre dame Mm -hmm. 
what inspired you to choose that school? Yeah, <laughs> that was kind of random too. Um, you know, uh, well, I think my parents loved the idea that it was a Catholic university. So, um, and I like the idea that, you know, that had a, a good football team, I guess, good, good <laughs> entertainment. Right. And, um, you know, and I think this was all the time before um, I was really aware, like my kids have, you know, are launched in the world and, and gone to school. But, you know, the, the analytics that people put into figuring out what school to go to these days was nothing like in 1976. So, uh, right. you know, I applied to four places and, um, you know, and then I, I just chose the one that seemed the most prestigious at the time. Um, if I had been paying attention, um, one of the things that's great about the um, program at Notre Dame is the um, five-year degree, and um, the third year is spent in Rome. Uh, the entire year is spent in Rome as a class. So, you know, that's that's pretty amazing. They have their own buildings in Rome that um, where the studios are and stuff, and uh, you get to travel a lot. And um, you only go to school three days a week. You go Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You get four days off to travel. You know, you get to travel on your own over the holidays. And then you travel as a class, you know, on a, a number of week-long field trips and things. So I think that's pretty impressive about that program. And it's, it's a massive highlight in everybody's school career. So, so I mean, uh, it worked out. Yeah. And, you know, obviously I wouldn't change it, but. <laughs> so you had the travel bug mm -hmm. as your parents took you around Europe. Right. Even before you went to Notre Dame. Yeah. Then you got a chance to spend an entire year in Notre Dame. How do you think those experiences influenced you as an architect over the rest of your career? Uh, I think I'm not sure I've been able to implement what what the influence was, because oftentimes we're doing just one building or two buildings, but place and space, especially, you know, what buildings do to create space, you know, the, the outside space that where they enclose semi-enclosed areas and things like, you know, plazas and piazzas and, and squares and things like that has always been a very big um, thing in the back of my head whenever we're trying to design buildings. But oftentimes we're not you know, we're not doing enough buildings to create that. But occasionally we do get that opportunity. And that's some of the things I really like, especially even in single family residential is trying to like create that outdoor space that goes with the house. Right. And getting people to understand, like, you don't just walk out and have a, have a place and it's, and it works really well. It needs to work with the way the building or the house kind of, um, snuggles it a little bit or, you know, um, wraps around it somewhat or provides a good backdrop, you know, those types of things. Yeah. I, I think uh, in, in the U.S., kind of in so, somewhat in the way we do development, the way things, you know, we've had a few hundred years, but we haven't had like five, six, seven, eight hundred years of infill and filling in and, and, and developing. So, I think a lot of the space we do in this country, um, at least um, maybe not so much these days, but earlier in the late 20th century, is very what I think of as leaky space. You know, like like the buildings are spaced too far apart, or they don't, or the or the open space is really just so naked and 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 empty 
you know, that um, then something's supposed to happen there. But it was like when we were in architecture school and you would draw these certain kind of plants that, you know, look like they only belong on a fern bar or whatever <laughs> that used to be called. Right, right. So after Notre Dame or Notre Dame, yeah. you graduated, you worked for a couple of different firms for almost 10 years. Yeah. What was that experience like and what did you learn from each firm? Yeah. So um, I worked for three different firms before starting uh, on my own firm. And I think the first one um, was interesting. It was a fairly large firm. It was about 50 or 60 people and it had departments, very siloed kind of scenarios, sort of had like a a developer housing team. It had um, a design team for all the other projects that they did, sort of like two or three principals that had one or two people working for them that would design the projects. And then they had four or five, uh, you know, construction document teams. So I started working for a little while in the construction document team, but then I spent um, most of my, you know, 80% of my time there working in uh, the design department, if you will. And um, <laughs> I learned a lot about like uh, egos of different principals who uh, <laughs> each like their own designs, but didn't like the, the other partners that they were uh, designs and how you would um, kind of sneak things through you know, to get your way and things like that. It was a lot of politics um, and things in that firm. The next firm I worked for was created by a bunch of um, refugees at the SOM office in DC in the um, mid eighties. And then um, that firm grew quite a bit. I was like the 12th or 13th person there. And it was like 50 or 60 when I left um, four, wow. four or five years later, but um they um, they did more integrated teams, um, and so you know you had the opportunity to start near the when the you know somebody somebody um, put together the initial design, and then the team would would um, refine that, and then you know do the construction documents and get the permitting and everything, and then you know and then um, somebody would be you know kept on to to work with the CA. We did have a CA department, I think. But somebody on that team would do all of the submittals and visit the site occasionally and and stuff. So you got a full, you know, beginning to end opportunity to see and sizable projects and things like that. Um, and then I moved to northern New England um, and had never really done much in the way of wood, wood construct, you know, wood framing and things that had all been concrete and steel in DC. So um, I worked for a small firm in Woodstock, Vermont, uh, you know, we did a, we did a school, we did, um, some houses, we did some other, um, small commercial projects, but, uh, nine, 92 was a recession year. Right. And, uh, myself and another, um, another, uh, person there at the firm, basically the same age as me, we could see like that things weren't going to last uh, the principal didn't really do a lot of networking or marketing. Um, so he just relied on like the phone ringing occasionally and getting a project. So we were planning our um, exit, but in the meantime, um, we got laid off. So um, we then, um, you know, had decided to start a firm. So 
that's what we did. We gave it a go. Now, before we get to the firm you created, I'm curious, since you had a number of years of experience in different ways to develop projects. Mm -hmm. uh, and what I mean by that is you had one firm that kind of had a design department and right. production department, if you will. Yep. And then you had a more integrated sort of experience. Did you have a preference between those two? Well, I think if you're, um, I don't really, I mean, I think if I had, if I had to work in a place with silos, I'd, I'd probably prefer being in the, more in the design end of that. But, you know, that's a little bit, um, seems unrealistic to me because, you know, there's so much that if a building is going to be successful about how it goes together, mm -hmm. that you don't learn in that situation. Like in my first three years, my, my experience was pretty lacking, I think, in terms of that. You know, it was a lot like, you know, it wasn't much different than school in some ways, you know what I mean? Um, the level of, we had to be a little more savvy about what actually could stand up. But, right. um, but other than that, it wasn't that um, fulfill, you know, fulfilling if you want to have a long career. So um, I, think, I think learning everything as soon as possible um, and as much depth as possible is the way to go. I mean, personally, I think. Okay. Uh, you know, and especially if you're going to end up, when you end up in a, a smaller firm, you absolutely have to. You know what I mean? You, right. can't, you can't compartmentalize anything, really. Yeah. So recession comes, you yep. branch out, start your own firm. That must have been a scary time. Yeah, we made $320 the first year. We no had to kidding. split it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so then, uh, yeah, um, it took a couple of years because it was a recession and, um, and we were both flatlanders in that meaning that um, we weren't native Vermonters or native New Hampshire people. So, and it did take a, we had both only been there a few years. So it takes a little bit of time to, to get in, in, ensconced in the communities and stuff, which is really kind of what I was looking for, for moving to New, Northern New England anyway, is that idea of um, uh, being very present wherever you were going to be rather than in a larger a larger um, city or something, you know, until you're like 45 and uh, networked your way or, you know, uh, maintained your, gotten to a certain level, it takes a while to, uh, to become uh, seen. Whereas in a smaller community, I thought, you know, it could be more part of the fabric right away. So, and, and that's pretty much been the case. Yeah. We started a firm, and um, I would advise—I mean, I would advise against using um, using letters that um, that are, can be confused for something else. So it was Alpha and Kennedy, which we, you know, shortened to UK Architects. And then, you know, I don't know how many times, how many questions I got um, about, "Are you from England? You know, are you from right. the UK?" and even um, even later, as uh, social media got, or uh, we got followed by so many plumbers and electricians from the UK. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> thought they were like thought they were networking with um, architects over there, but uh, <laughs> I think you were missing a, an extra letter there. See, you just needed to add that third letter, and then you would have been okay. Exactly. Well, you know, when people would ask us, I mean, I just I used to tell them, well. It doesn't stand for the United Kingdom. It stands for unbelievably knowledgeable. <laughs> that always got a little laugh. So, 
Uh, well, it made me laugh. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So I'm curious, what took you to Northern New England, though? You were working in D.C. before. Yeah, it was 89. Um, uh, it was time to think about having family. We were living down in, right down in the center of the city. And, you know, it was, it was a bit questionable, like, how things were going to turn out, because uh, it was the... That was, you know, the crack epidemic, right? The mayor of DC, you know, um, was caught smoking crack in a hotel room with a prostitute, you know, um, there was gun violence, a lot of gun violence in DC. Um, and, you know, I mean, in reality, if I had thought about it a little bit more awareness, you know, really, we weren't in, living in a part of town that was, that was overly affected by that, although, you know, peripherally. Um, but, you know, you think about kids and you think about, um, you know, how that's going to work out. Um, so, you know, this idea of being more a part of the fabric of the place you live. And, um, yeah, it was a great place to raise kids and up here. Right. Um, and, you know, and uh, it's not it's not hot and sweaty like it is down there. <laughs> uh, that's that's good. Yeah. So with UK Architects and you and your partner that joined and created this firm, what were what was your role in the firm and how did that go? Yeah, so we um we kind of started out as um Hunter was the uh sort of like the front end um you know, tried the guy that was tasked with trying to bring the work in mm -hmm. to some degree you know, if, if we had to choose between us, who would, you know, do that. And then I was more the, you know, push the work out, get the work done. Um, although we both had to like, you know, when we, it was just the two of us, we both had to do everything. That was a good um, division of sort of like the basic labor, if you will. And then um, it was, it was interesting because um, we didn't really focus on any specific style or any specific uh niche of work so and we used to always tell people when they'd ask oh do you do houses do you do this do you do that and we'd say it, we're more like the um country doctors of architecture so if you have like cancer or a hangnail you know the doctor needs to cure that right and uh so if you've got a design issue we've got to figure it out right um you know, so it's not as efficient as being doing the same type of project over and over again, but it's always interesting, you know, um, so we've done everything, commercial, institutional, single family, multifamily, retail, and a little bit of everything. Do you find that being in a smaller community that that's really necessary in order to be successful as an architect in a smaller community? Um, I think here you can make it um, as a single family residential architect just fine if that's what you want to do um and then i think otherwise i do think you have to kind of be more nimble and more multifaceted uh, you know with all the other different things there's not that much of or at least until recently as this, this area has grown a bit more there wasn't that much when we especially when we were starting out of of any one thing that would keep you fully occupied so when we first met, which was several years ago now, mm -hmm. you were sort of making a transition to being more the front end person. Was it yeah. that your partner had kind of retired at that point? And you, what, 
you were becoming the front person now. What was that like? Yeah, well, he didn't actually retire. What happened was 2008, as we all know, was the big, big, big mother of recessions. And it lasted a long, long time for lots of architects. And uh, he didn't have as much staying power in his um, family as I did. And my wife had a very good job. His wife was, uh, you know, was doing a variety of things, but hadn't really nailed a consistent um, long-term job with benefits and all those other good things. So uh, he got a really good offer from one of our clients, which was a prep school that we had done uh, two or three really nice projects for. um, And he became their um, chief operating officer. So, um, which means that, you know, he had to like, manage all the budgets for all of the physical plant. He had to, you know, make sure that the um, vehicles were full of gas, but he also got to do some planning of projects that would be coming up and things like that. So, so uh, yeah, he, it was a good thing and he didn't have to worry about where, you know, was he going to have, was he going to have enough work to keep him busy? (laughs) You know, he probably has more work. Right. So, but, but that left me um, continuing on. And what was very interesting, um, having at that point probably been over 20, a little over 20 years as, you know, in a 50-50 partnership, if you will, I didn't really know that I was maybe missing any kind of freedom. But what I did find was that all of a sudden, or, and in the, in the you know, soon after Hunter moved on, we, it was whatever I really wanted to do. I could just say, that's what we're going to do. That's how right. we're going to do it. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You know, it was kind of, uh, there was kind of this extra freedom that I hadn't really realized that would, would be happening. So that was unexpected breath of fresh air. In other words, I wasn't really looking for that. It wasn't really a problem per se, but it was something, um, you know, that just happened. So that was interesting. And then, but then I think after a few years of that in wanting to make the business a little more robust and have a little bit more, um, uh, more senior kind of staff to rely on, I reached out to another local architect who was, uh, self-employed um, sole practitioner and um, asked if she was interested in um, maybe, you know, doing a little bit more, making, you know, getting, creating a larger firm together. And um, we did a little test run, you know, on a couple of projects to see how it would work out and it worked great. And it's been great from day one. And um, so Sloan and I have been, 50-50 for about three years, maybe two and a half years, three years. Uh, it's it's amazing. Do you find having a partner a little more comfortable since you had had a partner for so many years before? Yeah, I I never want, I never, I'm not a, I'm not, I don't have a really big ego or I don't, and I'm always trying to be collaborative and get along with people. You know, I, um, I've taken those like, Enneagrams or um, different um, personality tests. And it always says that I'm like the person who's like trying to resolve people's disputes or, um, you know, like uh, 
be more diplomatic or collaborative and things like that. So, yeah, I like having somebody to bounce things off of. I don't like, um, you know, I would, it, I would lose my mind. I think being all by myself doing, doing things. I'd always need somebody to ask, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Is that from a design aspect as well as a business aspect? Yeah, everything. <laughs> okay. You know, maybe it's insecurity. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe, uh, maybe I need that, um, that reinforcement that that's a good idea or, you know, no, that's not a great idea or whatever. But I always find that throughout my career, especially um, even now, ever since the firm started, like if one of us, one of the principals would be working on a design, you know, taking the lead, you know, designing something and then show it to the other one um, and get some feedback. And there would be often times where I thought I had like done this just killer design like just the plan was working so well you know and then and then somebody else takes a look at it and they they go well yeah they weren't very excited they weren't as excited as i was about it and and then they would make a few comments and you would you would go all right i'll take a look at that i'll see what that's <laughs> like and then you know you you tweak it and you move it around and you and you refine it and then it's even better and that's, you know, and I would have, and before I asked them what they thought, I thought there's no way this plan could get better, you know? Right. I mean, it was awesome. So I've found that collaboration just makes things better. Yeah. Almost all the time. With UK architects and now Mayor Kennedy architects, what's been the level of staff that you've had over the years? Uh, how large have you gotten and... Mm maybe not have to share how small you've had to get at times, but <laughs> <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, yeah. I have cards on the table. Um, so we started the two of us back in 92. And um, I think we, we probably a couple of years and we started hiring people and that it's always that just the decision to sort of like add somebody to your, to your firm like be responsible for meeting a payroll even if it's right just one other person that's that's a little daunting until you do it you know and then once you get get it going and you have other people it's very hard to not have staff you know it's it's liberating and i i, I also like the idea of mentoring people um as best i can but we've gone from the two, then we up till then at 2007, 2008, we were up to 13 people. And then um, in 2011 or 12, we were, we were back to the two of us plus maybe two other people that were really limited part-time. And then took a little while and we slowly grew back and we're now... 10 people right now with a summer intern. So we'll be nine people next month. And I think nine or 10 is the max um, in my mind in order for two principals to manage and also bring in enough work and things like that. It's not, it's, it's not impossible to keep that that size busy, especially here in a more, in a slightly rural area. 
over your career, you've taken an interest in sustainability and energy efficiency. Where did that all come from? And what have you done over your career to further those efforts? Yeah, um, well, I wasn't very interested in the beginning. I mean, I, you know, I think I was much more interested in like this idea of design, you know, just design for design's sake. And, you know, once I started learning how buildings went together, and then when I moved here, where we have significant change of season, um, you could physically just see uh, things that had to do a lot with energy efficiency visibly. Like you could see houses that hadn't, it would have, we'd have a major snowstorm and two days later, there'd be no snow whatsoever on that roof because mm -hmm. it had all melted off completely because there was no insulation whatsoever from these older houses. And then you could see a lot of buildings that were done in the eighties and nineties where we were starting, people were starting to think a lot about energy efficiency, but hadn't really worked out any of the kinks. And so you would see a lot of these, a lot of houses get built where there were massive ice dams along the perimeter because it wasn't, there was, there was insulation. So the snow was melting slowly, but, and it was building up at the edge and then it was forcing its way in, you know, this classic ice dam leaking back in through the roofing. And then finally, you know, uh, we understood, we began to understand about air sealing and, and it's being as important as um, our values and using um, and learning more about the building science. And, you know, now you can see like um, higher performance, higher performance buildings. Sustainability has always been something, you know, very, very very concerned about it. I think buildings that get really well utilized are more sustainable than buildings that are I think energy efficient but you know aren't that aren't that heavily utilized I think something that's utilized and loved will always be taken care of and will last really long for a really long time you know so we strive strive to think about how um how well a building is going to fit in and and um, meet the needs of the the users and the community. Uh, I think that's really really important. And then one of the things by reaching out to Sloan a few years ago to have bring, to ask her to join in, she's one of the most knowledgeable people I've ever met about sustainability and energy efficiency. She understands the technical aspects of that much better than I ever did. And I've learned a lot from her even in the last few years. Um, but uh, one of the other things is that there's a real challenge, I think, for all architects. We, we get told all the time by um, webinars and the AIA and magazines and everything that the architects have to be the ones leading the charge on sustainability and energy efficiency. And I think we all do a really do really try really hard, but I think the, the 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 even more important or more capable of leading that charge are our clients, and and I mean the clients more. I mean the clients um, who are 
you know, developer type of clients who are constantly building buildings and they know this, they know that they should be doing this. And I don't think that, I don't, I really feel like it needs to be just as much on that entity of people, you know, that type of um, group as it is on the rest, on the rest of the design community, because we don't have control over, we're doing, we're being hired to, to generally speaking, do what they're asking us to do. But, you know, we're bringing also bringing our expertise and, and knowledge and commitment to giving them a really good product. But there are some things that cost, that cost more money up front, which will pay off in the end. But depending upon how you're, how projects being uh, financed or where, how the money is going into the project. And if somebody's building something to sell it five years from now, you know, they don't necessarily have that long-term commitment. So finding out how to move the needle on that is always challenging. I mean, we, we tell our clients on every project that this is really important to us and that we're committed to this, but that we can only, you know, really get as far as what that budget or that client commitment is, you know? And so that's, I think that's the really, really huge challenge is that we can tell each other as architects that we should be doing this and that we should be telling our clients to do this. But if our clients don't do it, (laughs) we can only do some of it. We can't do all of it. Right. So you've practiced for a number of years now. Mm. How has the practice of architecture changed over your career that you've had your own practice? Everything goes much faster. <laughs> you do much more. You do much more work, or you get much further. You move the project along much faster every day than it used to. I I don't know. I go back to started working in 1981, and everything was on. Uh, paper or mylar and you know used to say uh don't draw more in the morning than you can erase in the afternoon (laughs) and and, and along with that was um my my the other founder of this firm hunter when we first met he had a he had one of those metal electric erasers oh yeah and if you used it enough it would get really hot so he actually had an oven mitt that he would wear on his (laughs) hand when he was erasing so, um, and then electronic communication, you know, obviously this is almost in almost any career. I think the electronic communication has just really like changed. I remember when I first started, you know, we would send, um, send something across town and you would send it by mail and it would get delivered three days later. Right. And then you would have to wait for them to call you up and talk to you about it. I remember the very first fax machine I ever saw, which was a a little tube that you put a piece of paper in and then you put it on this cradle and you took the handset from a phone and you put it on the handset recesses on the thing. And then it would spin for half an hour. Right. And it would send this, this really poor image to somebody on the other side. Uh, But you know, then I've been in the hand drawing to digital documentation to BIM. The thing that is now is that drives me the most crazy about the changes is with when you're working in BIM, which is phenomenal, 
advances in like you know being able to see things always in 3d at any point in time but you kind of have to provide more information into the the software to get something to see and it's a real challenge you know trying like it's always been a challenge in architecture to try and go how far do you go before you um you review it with somebody and then, you know, how do you iterate from one version to the next, to the next and move things forward? And, and what decisions can you delay in order to work other things out? Whereas with the, the process we have now, we have to kind of just do a lot of, add a lot of information and make a lot of decisions earlier to, to, and sometimes they get made a little bit too early, I think is, is, is a challenge, but I would say speed, you know, the, the amount of, the amount of um, stuff I, I could do in a day if I wasn't answering the phone or answering emails is phenomenally more than what, what I would have ever thought I was doing when I first started, you know, in terms of it in a day, just the ability to, you know, do things that whole not having to redraw every option over by hand, right? <laughs> you know, doing like three options for somebody, you know, how much of that was just repetitive retracing the same thing. So you could put the little piece that was different, you know, there, um, you know, that that's phenomenal. That That's always been one of my favorite things about going digital was just I could do options without. Right, without having to redraw it. Yeah. So as someone who's practiced for mm -hmm. almost 30 years uh, of owning your own business, what are your next steps? What are you thinking as the next steps in your career? So I've been now 40 years since I got out of architecture school and... Uh, you know, I've just determined that I, the thing I'm least like to do anymore is project management aspects, you know, just constantly hurting cats and, you know, always responding to issues that come up maybe during construction, you know, that need to be um, adjusted or uh, rethought sometimes. Um, you know, those just, those just take a lot of energy to, to keep up with. And um, I'm starting to lose a little bit of that energy. I actually just became a grandfather three days ago. So for oh. the first time, so. Congratulations. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, thank you. So that, um, that tells you sort of like the energy level I have at this point. But um, so I would like, I'm thinking, you know, we need to transition somebody uh, we need, do need to transition somebody into my role or into part of my role to to keep the the firm uh, moving forward um, really well. And so, what I'd like to do is go back into the more into the operations um, side of things, like you know um, how to improve things in how we do things, mm -hmm. how to um, mentor some people, how to um, do firm man do firm management stuff as opposed to project management um, things, you know. But uh, improve our proposals, improve our, our processes, things like that. 
yeah. as I phase my way into the horizon. And that will allow somebody else who's most likely got project experience to start taking more of a uh, more leadership role on projects and then um, get some mentoring and how to how to run the firm over time. Right. So that's where that's where I think I'm heading. But I want to do that. What I want to do is I want to do that while traveling slowly around the world. So I want to do it as a digital nomad. <laughs> get back to more of your traveling. Yes, yes. So that's that, there's nothing I love more than actually, you know, just traveling and seeing stuff. So I'm trying to figure out how I can do that. Hopefully in about a year, get started doing that. So we will see. So where did you think your career in architecture would take you? Is this where you thought you would be at this point in your career when you maybe first started or had you not thought that far forward? Yeah, so I think not being, um, not really um, having a great big ego or this idea that I was going to have my own firm. I never was one of those people that in school, you know, knew they wanted to have their own firm. So I really just like, you know, the doing of the, the work, you know, the being, you know, coming up with designs, working things out. And, you know, what did we all do on a regular basis? So whether I owned the firm or I did it for somebody else wasn't really that important to me. I became a firm owner, I think, as much by um, necessity as by anything. But I have to say, I do love it. I like the fact that I can do what I want (laughs) (laughs) to some degree. I mean, within reason. But, you know, I could have been, uh, I could have been, in a support role from for my career i think as i said before I, you know the coll- the collaborative nature of this profession you know is probably the most attractive thing to me about it and getting to wear black and the certain kind of eyeglasses and you know and, and just being <laughs> really look. cool people thinking people thinking you're really cool right because um, right. you're an architect you know, so. <laughs> okay well i think that's a great place to uh take a short break And we'll explore a little bit more about your Mac experience and Apple products right after this. How do you manage your firm? Are you using dated and clunky software? Are you frustrated using spreadsheets and never really getting a clear view of the status of your projects? Then I'm happy you're listening because inside the Apple Studio sponsor Monograph can help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets, and you can do it all in real time. They have a feature called Money Gantt, and with this awesome tool, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget on a project. Along with their new tool, Resource, which allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget, you can easily adjust your projects on a week-to-week basis. Monograph makes this easy. So help support Inside the Apple Studio by checking out Monograph at monograph.com. Be proactive with Monograph. Welcome back, Chris. You've taken us through quite an amazing architectural journey, but now let's discuss how you started using a Mac and eventually other Apple products. What was the first Mac you owned and how were you first exposed to the Mac in general? Um, Well, um, the first... 
computer I ever used was a Mac. Um, it was um, 1984. It was at the second firm I was at. And one day, the little, like, I think it was a 512, the little mm -hmm. box, the little kind of yellow gray box appeared on a lazy Susan between me and the guy next to me. And um, we then started typing all of our correspondence letters because mm -hmm. there was no email at that point in time. And so there was, uh, there were probably like, you know, it was a firm of like 25 to 30 people at the time. So there were probably like a dozen of these Macs. And, you know, the firm I was at before had, had four or five um, sort of secretarial positions that typed everything. You would like hand write out the guts of a letter and they would type it up or whatever it was, you know, and they worked on these, I think they were called word processors, you know, at that point in time, the machine was. So that little like 512, whatever came after, I think there was a pre predecessor, was it the Lisa or the something? Yeah, or whatever the Lisa that, came out in a year before the Mac in 1983. Yeah, right. So one guy in the office had a Lisa at his desk and then, you know, and then, then I remember, I think we might have between 84 and 89, probably upgraded, you know, to an SE, a couple of SE, to the SE or whatever right. it was. It's still a box, but a little bit bigger. I remember we were all enamored of, um, was it Apple Draw or oh, something? Mac was Draw. A, Mac Draw. It was Mac, Mac Draw. Draw. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were all enamored of that. And we would all be like, in our side or free time, we'd be like doing little graphic things in there that were, I look back today and they're just so pixelated and, <laughs> you know, whatever. But um, yeah, so we, you know, and what happened was like the, the, the stable of people who did like secretarial type work disappeared from the offices at that point in time, because we could all do our, um, our own correspondence pretty much right there. And I think we had a Mac SE when we opened our firm. The, I actually did work briefly at, at a firm, the firm in Woodstock worked in a little bit in AutoCAD on a, um, on a, I guess a DOS, I guess it was a yeah. DOS machine at that time. But I don't even know how I even knew how to use it because I think I turned it on and I just opened the software and I worked right in it. But we did mostly hand drawing at that point in time. We did a a tiny bit of AutoCAD. Yeah. And we hated doing it because we had one of those pen plotters that um, if the humidity changed, right. the pen would rip the paper. <laughs> <laughs> and so it took forever to spit out a set of drawings, you know? Right. So um, uh, it was much more productive to stay with the hand drawing at that point in time. Uh, then the next thing that happened was in 96, 95 or 96, when Jobs, Steve Jobs had left Apple and um, they licensed the operating system. Right. They licensed the Mac OS to um, uh, third parties. And there was a firm, there was a company in Austin, Texas that started building boxes yep. you know, that looked really ugly like PCs, but they were a lot less expensive than, than the Mac. Right. Or the one from Apple. And so we had bought, we bought a bunch of those. So we were basically working with the, you know, the Mac OS. And we, we started using Vectorworks um, 
we selected Vectorworks as the software to use at that point in time. And when it was called Minicad at the time. And then, right. uh, and then basically we just kept then, you know, that, that little experiment on Apple's part, when jobs came back and stopped doing that, we bought those fruity 2d iMacs and started getting laptops and, uh, and everything, you know, and now we've just over the years been just doing it, but I have to say Sloan, my, you know, my new business partner, newer business partner, she's not she's not a mac evangelist <laughs> oh no so so i you know so so um we are not a hundred percent mac anymore because and this you know as as things have become more cloud-based which is nice you know platform is a little bit agnostic at some level right you know you can use this other than revit which we don't use we use archicad now but um you can you can be in win on a Windows machine or on an Apple machine, and you can, um, you know, work on the same files because they go back and forth, right? You know, and it doesn't matter. So, I, I, in some ways, that's good, but I do find that the Windows machines have a little more are a little more problematic than the than the Macs. Yeah, you know, so. I think it's always been that way. I think you pay may have paid in the past, paid a little bit more for the Mac, but it came with less problems. Right. It worked better. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned casually there is something that you're now on uh, Archicad. Yeah. When did that transition happen from Vectorworks to Archicad? So I loved Vectorworks and I still love Vectorworks, but probably in um, around... But around 2014, 2015, Vectorworks, they kept telling us they were BIM. And they are BIM, but they weren't, it wasn't robust. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you would, you would watch the beach ball of death, right? Spin and spin and spin. Yeah. And I don't even know. I've never even seen the beach. I haven't seen any kind of beach ball for the last few years. They must have just gotten rid of it completely and... It's still there. <laughs> I don't lock up anymore. So okay. that's the thing, you know, like Archicad was robust. It was, it was more, it just, it just worked quicker um, within yeah. the, within the, the machines. So we would spend a lot of time watching our screen waiting in Vectorworks. Vectorworks, the drawings look nicer. They have a more, it's easier to make them look like an architect drew them than an engineer. Mm -hmm. I think Revit and Archicad, that's the biggest problem I have with those those really high-end BIM thing is, is that you have to spend a lot of time if you want the drawing to be what I'd call legible, uh -huh. you know? Um, but uh, yeah, so that happened about five years ago. Um, I will have to say, so this is showing my age. I don't use Archicad personally. Okay. So I still, if I need to do some kind of 2D um, digital drawing, I will open up Vectorworks, map it out, and then export it to DWG, which can be imported into ARCHICAD, and then it can be 3D. Right. With Somebody else can do that. Yeah. Because <laughs> the problem with that is there, there's too there way too much to know about like I've never been in a position with with Archicad or if, if it was Revit or whatever, 
where I could use it all day long enough to learn it mm-hmm. because there's so many things, uh, buttons to click, you know, menus to choose from, like things to manipulate to get things to do certain things. Right. And because you're you're doing more than you were doing when you were drawing in two dimensions and then extruding it up, you're, right. you're pretty much, and there's so much stuff that BIM wants to know. So yeah. I have... I have just not done it, but I constantly are pushing people to think that when they say, oh, I can't, you can't do that with this. I'm, I'm almost always right when I say, I think you can do, I think you can do it this, I think you can do that. I think yeah. if you think about it, if you, if you know, you can find, cause, cause these, these programmers that create these things have, have really, they're trying to impress us. So, right. and I'm often right telling people like, you can do it. You can figure it out. Yeah. So you have somebody champion that transition in your firm since you personally weren't doing that. The staff was like, they were tired of watching the, the screen be locked up. And they kept saying, like, if you go to one of these others, you will, we will be able to work more efficiently. Obviously, you know, there was a huge price point difference between uh-huh. what Vectorworks costs to, to per station and what ArchiCAD and Revit cost. But, and as a small firm still, still trying to work our way out of the recession to some degree, we had to be careful about how we, you know, spent that kind of money all right. at once, you know? So uh, we did it and we haven't looked back. I mean, um, it has been more productive. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing, the only problem I've had is that the drawings just don't look as nice. Not only transitioning programs, but what was it like to essentially recreate all of your defaults? Yeah, that I don't, um, we, we've now, um, we've now become, we've got, so let's see. So there's the two principles and then, um, and then there's the office manager and then the rest of, so the six or seven other people we call them the core team. And so they meet one, they meet an hour every Thursday and they discuss improvements or things they found. And, you know, it's sort of like, what did I learn this week? You know, that the rest of you should know, or since going to BIM, we, we, we have these like um, templates that are sort of like have a lot of settings in them that, you know, so right. when you start a project, a lot of things will just happen behind the scenes the way you want them to, to some degree. And so we're always refining our template. And so that the core group takes care of that. And then we do a We do a, like a five minute check-in on what the core group's been talking about at staff meeting. And, um, and then, you know, and then Sloan and I can ask questions and we can make suggestions about things. You know, it, it has a lot to do with like, do we want things to look the way they've always looked since before, you know, since it was a hand drawing, like, you know, what does a door schedule look like, you know, kind of thing. Right. Or, you know, and what is, and then what do these Hungarian programmers, you know, do ArchiCAD <laughs> put into things you can choose to have in your door schedule that we never even, we don't care about, you know, and, but somebody in the office thought, Oh, why don't I just stick that on there? And you look at the drawing and you're like, we don't need that, you know, get that out of there <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of thing. So, you know, there's, there's so much. Yeah. 
you know, and I know large firms do have sort of like BIM managers, you know, and, right. and, and people that are, aren't even doing projects, but they're just managing how other people are doing or learning about things and stuff. And, um, challenging in a small firm, you know, so we have, um, we do have one person here who, who's, she's probably been she's working for us since she got out of school. She's about five, five and a half years in. And I don't think there's anybody out there that could know this program better than she does Yeah. at this point. I mean, she's just phenomenal. She can remember, you can be talking to her on the phone about how to do something. She's probably like, changing her baby's diaper while she's talking to you. And she can tell you, click on this, drop down to this line, right. click on that. And it'll give you this pop-up and then click on that. And, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, unbelievable uh, memory for just like everything in there. After 40 years, I don't think I have room for that. <laughs> I wish I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What other applications or services do you use to manage the rest of your practice? How do you deal with your, yeah. like a common contacts calendar in a small office yeah. like yours? Well, one of the things we do, or I do anyway, is when I choose a software to work with for almost anything, it has to be, a, has to have a really nice interface, a really good look to it, you know? So, uh-huh we've we've in the last year and a half two years maybe we've started working using this uh software called monograph and it um it does all our timesheets. it helps us do project scheduling um task management it's just about ready for us to start using it for our invoicing um, and it's beautiful to look at mm -hmm. and so therefore i i like using it <laughs> okay <laughs> you know that's the sort of like what the mac is in a sense what what using macs is all about you know they're beautiful pieces of hardware and um and you enjoy enjoy looking i mean as an architect you like design right you know it's like yeah. i've always been amazed at firms that have just, just just had rooms full of just gray boxes that were just boring and just you know they're well they're designed by engineers and not to say that they're wrong. It's just, they're just utilitarian and that's it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and I've been surprised that architects would put up with that in general, but uh, more folk, um, I'm saying uh, monograph is one that we, that we've, we've been using, but two things that I, that have, and these, um, these aren't necessarily, one of them is Mac centric um, morfolio trace. Uh -huh. So like when you, when you pine for the old days of architecture of hand drawing and, but um, it's, it's a lot like a, it's a digital hand drawing combination. It's a little challenging, I think, because it's only iPad based and it would be nice if I could at the very least open these files up um, without converting them to PDFs on my, my laptop as well. I really, one thing that drives, does drive me crazy and I don't think it's just an Apple or Mac thing. It's, I really want everything to be iOS and, and Mac OS. You know, I don't want this. I don't want this. Like I can only use that one on my iPad or my phone and I can only use this on my computer. Right. I mean, I want to be able to use it all across the board. Um, but Morfolio Trace is one of my favorite apps of all time. Um, just to be able to, I do uh, concept sketching. I can 
and it's awesome to do that connected to Zoom and do it on the screen with people. It better than using those those um, limited capability whiteboards that come with like Google Meet or um, Zoom or whatever. And it has that that architectural quality to even if you're a horrible sketcher, it still looks better. <laughs> it looks better when you use Morfolio Trace than if you use a different sketching program. Uh huh. So I love that one. And then um, the one thing that has been a great thing and isn't Mac specific, but sort of going to this um, uh, internet-based phone systems, you know, virtual phone systems. Mm-hmm. So we use this comp- we use this one. We've tried like four or five of them over the years, and this one is the best we've tried. Um, Ring Central, and it it has um, you know it has a uh, all the phone um, stuff that you need. And rings through to your cell phone, so you don't need a desk phone anymore, right? You just just have your cell phone, and you know it's a, a work. It's something coming through Ring Central versus a regular your regular phone plan. You uh-huh. can tell the difference. But it also comes with like app that works. You can you can switch talking to the phone, and then start talk, and then switch the phone call to your computer. Some you know just just morph it right through. You can, um, it comes with a um, interface for mes- internal messaging that's very much like Slack. Okay. So we can do our phone and our sort of internal messaging threads all in Ring Central. It's really, it's really made a big difference. And, and, and we really started utilizing it to its capacity once the pandemic came along, right? Because everybody right. was remote. So, so that's been great. We were using Zoom types, the WebEx and GoToMeetings, or whatever they were, ages ago. Back in two thousand five and six, I was using the early versions of that because I don't like driving during the daytime during work hours. I, I find it so frustrating that I could be doing some work, but I'm just driving. Yeah. So um, these virtual meetings, we've been doing them forever, but um, obviously they've just become much better, things like that. But, you know, really the thing about the, the Mac at this point is, for me, is that it doesn't, it doesn't break down. It doesn't, you, you almost never have a problem, you know, that you have to deal with right. anymore. And now that a lot of things are cloud-based, you know, you even have trying to have a server, you don't need that anymore. Um, at least, especially for a small firm, you don't. And so that whole aspect of like, you know, one more, one more box that might not work perfectly. You don't have to worry about anymore. So what do you use now for that sort of, for file storage? I mean, Archicad, you're probably storing on the cloud for your projects, but what about other documents and, and things that you would use? Yeah, so we use Google Drive, and um, we have everything, everything in the cloud, and a lot. We have we're getting we're getting pretty pretty close to a terabyte of documents because we have everything. But um, you know, so then people just sync what they need to their laptops, and then um, but I pretty much have the entire. So la- the last computer, last laptop I got. I got a four terabyte hard drive so that I could take the entire terabyte of files plus the yeah 
plus the half a terabyte of project photos and put them all on my hard drive because I'm the one person in the office who's moving between all kinds of stuff. It's like I'm looking at old projects to get examples of things to include with, to send to a client to say, you know, we've done these before we've done, you know, I'm going into this other place. I can't wait. I, if I had to like go and go to the interface and go, okay, sync these files to my laptop now, I would be losing my mind. So I just, I just have a, my laptop and our entire cloud are, are basically the same thing. Everybody else just uses bits and pieces as they need it. What about for documents in general? Are you using like uh, Office 365 or are you using Apple's products uh, like pages and numbers or? I love Apple's pages and numbers and 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 um, Keynote and everything, but um, we are using um, Google Sheets and Google Docs because you know that whole like shareability, immediate shareability. Like even um, we would have to be using the the Office three sixty five in their cloud scenario, and then that would be a next another cloud right scenario along with you know so while word and and excel are further ahead in their capabilities than than docs and sheets at some level all the stuff you mostly need is in in the google suite right but i love i mean again it's like if you care a lot about how things look and feel yeah it's easier with pages and key pages and, and numbers than it is with the others, I mean the the flexibility and the the granular ability to change the the look and the templates that it comes with are just so much so much nicer. So, what's your favorite? You you've kind of alluded to it, but articulate your favorite thing about using a Mac and other Apple devices. I I do feel like I've drank the Kool Aid a little bit, you know, but but the fact that <laughs> the fact that you know it's a an ecosystem, you know, that, mm -hmm. that kind of works, plays nice together. Like I will tell you, I am absolutely certain that Google, if I'm using Safari on my computer and I'm in, and I'm using Google docs or Google sheets, I'm pretty sure they make it go slower on Safari than on Chrome. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some days when I can go, I can, I can go and I'll, I'll be working on a spreadsheet. Like we have this like eight page spreadsheet that has all these inner links for doing our, for figuring out our fees and, you know, and how much work we're going to do and stuff. And um, I'll be trying to do that on Safari and oh my God, it will just be painfully slow. It'll be like 10 steps behind me. Right. Yeah. And then I'll go, so I'll um, open it in Chrome and it'll work perfectly fast. And I know there are enough people using it in Safari that they would want, that they would normally want to keep it moving, you know, just fine. But I think they just do that just out of spite. I'm just thinking, yeah. <laughs> even though nobody would admit it. <laughs> That's a story and we're sticking to it, right? Yeah, it's outside the ecosystem, right? You know, so yeah. I mean, Chrome is kind of Chrome has some really cool features, but the only thing I've ever had malware associated with anything on the Mac that I know of 
has been Chrome. And I always get every six months of my, when I would, cause I use Chrome, uh, one or two things work are, are designed to work better on Chrome than they are anywhere else. Right. And so I use it like, like, um, I have it open, but I don't use it except for those things. And then it gets attacked and I find like, you know, some Chinese browser or Chinese version of a search engine shows up instead of, instead of when I want to use Google. Right. You know? And it's in Google's own product. And, and there's something about the open openness of that software that allows it to get attacked easier, I think. What advice would you give somebody who might be considering using a Mac in their practice? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't hesitate. As an architect, the only thing, the only thing I can think of that off the top of my head that would cause me any kind of second thoughts is be like, if I'm going to be using Revit, it doesn't run natively. So I have to worry about parallels or something like that. But other than that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hesitate. I would just say like, you know, you do pay for what you get, you know, um, it seems like it's a little bit, maybe a little bit more expensive than what I could get if I wanted to get a windows machine of some kind. But, but the windows machine, you know, the bits and pieces are coming from various different places, you know, whereas everything is so tightly controlled within the, within the Mac world that, that it just, it just doesn't, mess up you know um, yeah. it just works fluidly that's that's my idea so you save a lot of time i think at the end of the day well chris i appreciate you sharing your apple and mac experience and before we wrap that section of the show up can you share with the audience one app or utility or possibly a service that you find most useful i think i'd go back to that i mean it's not it's not apple centric but that ring central that we use that phone that phone thing with especially with its messaging capabilities built in it's just been a key element of our of our ability to work especially um, when there's remote work involved you know and i think when we're all here together it'll it'll keep me from um yelling across the office to get someone's attention <laughs> <laughs> right you can just uh, quote unquote text them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll be like texting them essentially. Yes, right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. Okay. All right. So now on to our final segment, the ten questions. So the first question is, what is your favorite word? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm I'm going to say the word interesting is probably my favorite word because it's the word I use all the time. And my wife is like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> what is your least favorite word? That I could, I can't think of anything specifically. I mean, um, yeah, you know, um, beige, I think is my least favorite word. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Well, I think we talked about this a little earlier, but um, traveling, um, being out and about in civilization, you know, um, sort of seeing the creativity of people, just learning new stuff, seeing new things, that really, you know, makes me like super happy. What turns you off? Obnoxiousness. You know, when people are obnoxious, that's a killer. What sound or noise do you love? 
I think like the wind rustling in trees, you know, there's a certain, especially on a certain period of the year, like in early autumn, like when it's just a little bit of cool crispness in that air, you know, when the wind makes the leaves rustle. I like that. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, I share this hatred of this noise with my two dogs and that's motorcycles. I have no idea why, why you have to have, you know, mufflers on cars and cars cannot be loud, but motorcycles can be as loud as anybody wants <laughs> or as loud as we all don't want. You know, I mean, it's, I mean, I understand that they like that people who drive them like that rumbly stuff, but I, maybe we could make the, the handlebars vibrate instead of making the things so loud as you know i'll get out what's your favorite curse word i gotta say the f word is my my go-to what profession other than your own would you like to attempt um you know a professional traveler is what i would like to be <laughs> what profession would you not like to do my experience tells me i would never want to be a mechanical engineer i have all the respect in the world for those guys that they do it because i would i'm going to say 75 percent of the issues that we have on projects revolve around something to do with the mechanical systems and uh so it feels like it's it's like a never-ending battle trying to get things to work and i don't think i could I don't think I could put up with the disappointment on that regular basis. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, I think I would like him to say, I can't wait to introduce you to some really new, interesting people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great, Chris. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks again for joining me on this episode of inside the Apple studio Please let the listeners know where they can find you online. So um, we are at uh, www.ma-ke-arch.com. So ma-ke-arch.com. That's where you'll find us. Awesome. Great. Thanks again, Chris. I appreciate you uh, joining me for this episode. All right, I really, I really enjoyed it too, and um, and we have to, um, we have to clasp eyes on each other a few more times, and not let it go so long. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so All much, right. Chris. Bye bye. Cheers. I have been your host, Neil Pan, and thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. I'd like to thank my guests, Chris Kennedy, for joining me, and Monograph for their support. Learn more about Monograph at monograph.com. Find the show in your favorite podcast player by searching for Inside the Apple Studio and help support the show by leaving a five-star rating and comment in Apple Podcasts. You can also help support the show by telling a friend. This is the best way to help the show grow. Remember to follow the show by selecting the follow button in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. You can find me on Twitter at N-P-A-N-N or the show at Apple for Arc. That's Apple, F-O-R-A-R-C-H. 
Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com. That whole thing about knowledge um, transfer uh-huh. from the experienced person to the inexperienced person. I mean, you can do some of that, but it really, in my whole career, it just seems like, why do we all, why do each one of us in turn have to make the same mistakes? Yeah. <laughs> you know, why can't, why can't we just eliminate some things completely and make different mistakes yeah you know yeah i i one of the questions i was contemplating when you were talking that i didn't i didn't go into because i think we've we've covered Mm -hmm. a lot in that first part yeah but it is really very interesting the changes over the last 30 years in architecture Mm -hmm. you you could even say 40 years you know from the early 80s yeah have been so drastically different than the preceding 30 or 40 years of, oh, in yeah, the world yeah. of architecture, right? I mean, from 1950 to, well, let's say 1940 to 1980, right? The changes in architecture were minimal. At least, yeah, I minimal. don't know, we didn't, we didn't, well, for the most part, we didn't experience that. But at least in recollection, it is nothing like what we've experienced over our careers. It's been very difficult for our careers, yeah. I think. I think the 40 years, the earlier 40 years that you were saying, I think the only thing that happened in that period of time was thermally broken windows, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and since then, and I the mean, calculator, <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, and the calculator, but, um, but the, the, you know, just the material changes, the, right. the different ways of using things, the like, you know, there were stylistic changes, I think a little bit earlier occasionally, but but this people adhered even to certain styles more specifically. Right. Now we've got like the greatest mishmash of things. Yeah. I mean, we've got some really amazing like transitional kind of things between, you know, very traditional and very modern that blend the two together in certain ways. And, you know, and then there's, but, but yes, materials, methods of working. Um, I mean, here's the other thing as a, as a firm owner, that's always interesting. It's like back when I started, I brought my triangles, my, my right. scales, my everything. I got a, I got a parallel bar and a desk. Yep. That was what was supplied. And, a, and maybe Every, a lamp, right? Maybe a lamp. Yes. Everything else was mine. All the tools, all the tools were mine. Yeah. Now I got to come up with uh, two monitors, a laptop, monitor arms, a, a stand, sit desk, a really nice chair. Yeah. I mean, I sat on a metal stool when I first started. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's wild.